Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Have you ever had a dream that felt so real you weren't sure whether or not it really happened? Some believe dreams are the uninhibited connection to our natural psychic abilities. Dreams are at the very least a central source of the knowledge of the unconscious. Then of course, there are those who seem to have full control of their psychic abilities in the waking hours. The case we have for you today is a wild tangle of nefarious dreams and psychic premonitions. On August 12, 1993, in a small rural community near Big Fork, Montana, a happy couple slept peacefully in their bed, blissfully unaware that at that very moment someone was crawling through their basement bathroom window. The intruder quietly made their way through the house and upstairs to the master bedroom. Looming over the sleeping couple at the foot of the bed, they raised a gun and shot John Bosco in the head, killing him instantly. The sound woke John's wife, Nancy, who turned over quickly to put on her glasses, foggy and confused from her deep sleep. Nancy was then immediately shot in the back. She curled into herself from the pain, knocking the phone and her glasses off the nightstand to the floor. The killer left the way he came, leaving all the doors to the house securely locked. A week later, a neighbor realized something was wrong at the Bosco house. She hadn't seen John or Nancy for several days, which was very unusual for the friendly couple. At first, thinking they may have gone away on a trip, she tried to mind her business. But when she noticed the windows were open, but all the doors were locked, she knew they wouldn't leave the house in that state and called police. The police found the couple dead in their bed. They were both nude and Nancy was curled in a defensive fetal position with a pillow carefully placed over her face. John had been shot once in the head, while Nancy had been shot once in the cheek and once in the back. At first, they believed it was a murder-suicide because John's body was significantly more decomposed than Nancy's. The scene was very bloody, flies were everywhere, and the smell was overwhelming. John's body was black from decomposition, with maggots ravaging his body while Nancy was in a much better condition. My worst fear is being in a situation where I'm completely caught off guard. Most of us don't even know what's happening within a few seconds of waking up. There's no time to even figure out what's happening to react appropriately. Oh, mine too. Nancy never had a chance. Yeah, and just because he decomposed faster doesn't mean she's responsible. Right. And during the investigation, police didn't find a gun anywhere in the house. So this changed their theory from murder-suicide to murder. John did own a gun, but it was missing. Aside from the missing pistol, a few small items were missing from the home, but robbery wasn't believed to be the motive behind the murders. Jewelry and Nancy's purse were still present and in plain sight. Police determined John's stolen gun was not the one used in the crime itself. Whoever had done this had taken precautions. The telephone line had been cut to the house, and the power had been shut off manually from the basement. The autopsy revealed that John and Nancy had died around the same time. Nancy's body was only less decomposed because her wounds were covered by a pillow, preventing the maggots from getting to her as easily. You see, maggots feed on decaying flesh and spread enzymes that help turn the body into goo that's easier for them to eat. Since the couple was found naked and semen was found inside Nancy, they considered the idea that the crime may have been sexually motivated. Family and friends informed police that John and Nancy had been trying to get pregnant, 
and the tests confirmed that the DNA found on Nancy's body belonged to John. There was very little evidence that could help the case in the end, and the case went cold for months. Family of the couple had no idea who could have murdered them. They had only been in Montana for six months, not long enough to make any serious enemies. Well, if you're trying to get pregnant, that does explain why semen was in her body. But who do you know outside of your immediate neighbors and co-workers in less than six months of living in a new state? Yeah, and some people just like to sleep naked. I don't think you can assume it was sexually motivated just off the fact that a married couple were naked and had recently had sex. (laughs) (laughs) Six months doesn't really seem long enough to make someone hate you enough to kill you, but if some crazy killer saw them and decided that's all the motivation they needed, it wouldn't matter how long they've been there. That's true. But what made them move there in the first place? Great question. Let's back up. In 1990, 29-year-old Nancy Peterson lived in Colorado and had always wanted to be a model. After college, she got a job in sales. It wasn't her dream, but she was charming and outgoing and people naturally loved her, making it easy to close a deal. She would call people and discuss what she was selling and set up a time to show it to them. One day, she called a man named John Bosco, who was working as a furniture maker. After the sales pitch, he invited her over, but not because he was interested in the product she was selling. John and Nancy hit it off right away. Fate had brought them together at a difficult time in his life, but Nancy was just the positive change he needed. John was going through a brutal custody battle with the mother of his children, and Nancy was the light at the end of the tunnel. There was nearly a 10-year age gap between them, with John being 38 years old and Nancy being 29. But that didn't matter to them. They were in love. Everyone said that their love was electrifying, and they were made for each other. John and Nancy got married and two years later decided to take a huge leap and move to Montana. John loved the wide open spaces that Montana offered, and they were dreaming of setting up a woodworking business. The plan was to move to Montana, get settled, then they would go back and get the kids and move them to Montana too. They bought a beautiful house with land and even a woodworking shop for their business. Everything was working out according to their plan, until it started falling apart. John enrolled his two kids in school in Montana when they came to visit for the summer. The problem was, John never had permission to keep the kids in Montana. His ex-wife came and took them back to Colorado. John and his ex-wife were still in a nasty custody battle that had been going on for six years. John was actively pursuing full custody, but didn't have it yet. They were supposed to leave the day after the murder to head to Colorado for court. The bitter fighting over the kids led some to wonder, could John's ex-wife have something to do with the horrific double murder? Well, she does have a motive, and it's the day right before the court date. I'm not surprised anyone suspected her, to be honest. Always look into the spouse or the ex. I think her kids and the fact that she was all the way in Colorado at the time of the murder cleared her, though. You can always hire someone to do the dirty work for you. If not her, then who? Well, there was also a dispute between John and the guy they bought their house from. They bought the house with the intention of starting a woodworking business. After buying the house, they learned that there were zoning restrictions preventing them from starting a business in that location. The previous owners claimed John was told up front about the zoning restrictions, but John claimed to have been lied to. The dream of starting their business was the main reason they bought that house. And just like that, it all went up in smoke. 
John was furious, but no one believed the previous owner of the house had real motive to murder anyone. Then there was the trouble Nancy had been having with the local teenage boys. She had complained that some boys from the area had been watching her. Neighbors corroborated that teenage boys would drive past the house on a daily basis and honk at Nancy. She even caught them spying on her while she was sunbathing. The only other possible motive police uncovered was a few people who claimed John had expressed concerns that he would be murdered soon. Apparently, he had stirred up some trouble back in Boulder, Colorado, and was planning to expose several powerful attorneys and judges for corruption. Okay, it sounds like there's a ton of suspects for the police to look into at this point. I mean, the teenage boys could just be a bunch of little knuckleheads, but they also sound like potential stalkers. I agree. I know they didn't live there long, but in the six months since they moved there, they seem to have had several serious issues with various people. I also agree about the teens. Most likely idiot horny boys, but it needs to be looked into because you never know when someone's willing to cross that line. I mean, sick people can easily be triggered by being rejected. So were any of these leads hot or what? No, they didn't lead to anything solid at all. With the investigation going nowhere, John's mother, Tony, was desperate for answers. She contacted a man named Danian Brinkley, who claimed to have psychic abilities in hopes of finding clues to solve the case. Let me explain a little about Danian and how he developed these powers. On September 17, 1975, 25-year-old Danian was living in Atkins, South Carolina. He was on the phone with his best friend, Tom, while a terrible storm passed right overhead. A jolt of lightning shot through the window of his bedroom, tossing him across the room right out of his shoes, which were left literally welded to the floor. He couldn't move or talk, but he felt like he was on fire. He was dead when they arrived at the hospital, though they tried to resuscitate him. It was no use. He was pronounced dead. His friend Tom entered the room they had laid him in in the hospital to say goodbye to his best friend. He was shocked to see the sheet slowly rising and falling as if Danian was breathing. He screamed for the doctor who came in and confirmed that he was in fact alive, 28 minutes after he had been declared dead. The doctors explained to his parents that the lightning had traveled down his spine and damaged his nervous system. They had no idea if he would survive. After one week in the hospital, he was released, but he still couldn't walk, talk, or see. He was partially paralyzed for seven months, and it took two years for him to relearn how to walk and feed himself again. For Danian, though, his near-death experience had changed him even more in other ways. When he died, he had started down a tunnel of light and witnessed everything he had ever done. He was forced to confront the truth of his childhood as a self-centered, mean-spirited bully, and the heartless acts he had willingly committed while serving in the military in Southeast Asia. He was forced to confront all those he had victimized over the years and feel what he had made them feel. At the end of the tunnel, he was welcomed into a beautiful glowing cathedral, which he recognized as a place of learning. He was greeted by 13 beings who showed him small boxes containing knowledge of 117 future events that had yet to happen. He described these events later, and they included future presidents, future wars, and the collapse of the Soviet Union. His friends confirmed that the predictions he made after his experience did come true. 
Eventually, he stumbled upon a support group for people who had been through near-death experiences and caught the attention of a doctor studying the subject. He agreed to go through a series of tests. Danyan gave readings to eight people he had never met before and gave specific details he couldn't possibly have known. It convinced the doctor that he was, in fact, a true psychic. Listen, it may sound nutty to some of you, but I do believe we all have access to things beyond our realm, and some of us are just better at accessing those abilities. How wild is his story, though, right? He was struck by lightning through the window of his bedroom, confronted by all of the people he had ever wronged, then gifted with powerful psychic abilities. The whole thing sounds like a movie. I'm always skeptical of people who claim to be psychics, but I do believe some are real. Well, some people need that boost to access their abilities, and his just happened to be being struck by lightning, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) He does sound legit, though. I mean, he's impressing people he doesn't even know with his readings. But how did he go from learning he was psychic to helping with a murder case? His reputation was becoming well-known. He even wrote a book about his psychic abilities. That is how John's mother, Tony, found him. When she asked for his help in solving her son and daughter-in-law's murder, Danyan agreed to try. Danyan stared off into space for a minute, and then he tells her that he can see the event and sees a kid crawling through a basement window. He described a thin, lanky kid with black hair. He explained that it was someone who knew John and the layout of the house. He said the kid was currently away at college out west and would be caught in December of that year. Tony shook her head, believing she had completely wasted her time. What was she supposed to do with information like that? She left the meeting feeling disappointed and hopeless. Sham will tell us how this murder was eventually solved after this short break. Incredibly, just as Danyan had predicted, in December of 1993, the Montana police received a call from the police in Oregon. They claimed a student at the local Christian college had been talking about how he had murdered two people in Montana. 19-year-old Joseph Shadow Clark, who went by his middle name Shadow, fit every one of Danyan's descriptions. He had a slight build and dark hair. Shadow was the son of the people John had bought his house from, meaning Shadow knew the house well and it was his childhood home. He had recently left Montana to go to George Fox Christian College in Oregon, which was in the West. Montana police had a hard time believing a kid that had never been in trouble with the law in his life could commit such a heinous crime for no apparent reason, but they had to check it out. Shadow had told other kids at school that he had been having dreams about rape and murder since earlier that year. One day he showed off a 9mm Smith & Wesson and bragged about how he had used it to kill two people in Montana. It was his friends that reported it to campus authorities. His confessions to them had been disturbing and didn't feel like just bravado. The campus security chief contacted Oregon police station with the information. A detective, Michael Sward, remembered the open Bosco murders case in Montana from back in August and made the connection. People who knew Shadow claimed he was the last person they would have picked out to be a murderer. He was active in church, a bright student at Big Fork High School and George Fox College, and even a Royal Ranger. He had no criminal record to speak of. We have seen this several times before. The clean-cut, all-American kid turns out to really be a psycho, and no one saw it coming. Most likely, he did have warning signs and did get into trouble, but his privilege kept it off his record. Oh, I don't think murderers have a specific look to them. 
They can literally be anyone. In fact, the best ones are the ones that blend in with society's norms. Absolutely. Okay, so Shadow was talking big to his friends, but what did he have to say to the police? Montana police traveled to Oregon and brought him in for questioning. After a little digging, they discovered not only was Shadow the son of the people who had sold the couple their house, he was also one of the teens accused of spying on Nancy. Shadow told police he gave the 9mm Smith & Wesson to a friend in a different city. The friend, who was not implicated in the crime, surrendered the gun to the police without question on December 8th of 1993. Shadow had bought the gun legally earlier that summer. The ballistics of the gun matched those left at the scene of the crime. He didn't even try to deny what he had done when he was interrogated. He told police it all started when he started having dreams about murdering people and raping faceless women. He told investigators that he had a reoccurring nightmare for almost a month in which he kept breaking into the Bosco home. The nightmare came to him every night. He explained that in early August, the dreams intensified, calling to him. A voice told him to get up and go. He felt overpowered and without realizing it, ended up at the Bosco house. He knew the house well, even in the dark, because it was his childhood home. He claims to not remember turning off the power and cutting the phone line, but admits it's possible. He also said he didn't remember going up to the second floor, but he did recall standing in the doorway of the couple's bedroom. He says his memory of that night is spotty and comes in flashes. That's bizarre. I'm not sure if I believe that or not. I mean, it's possible he had a psychotic break and the dreams were how his brain was trying to deal with it. I certainly don't think he was possessed or anything. What do you think about the dream excuse? Okay, there's no way he made that drive, snuck into that home, and murdered that couple, all while believing he was dreaming. If he had been staying with the couple and woke up in the middle of the night and walked over to their room to harm them, then his little dream theory would be stronger. So, he didn't really remember breaking into the house. How does he even know he did it if he doesn't remember? That's just it. Shadow was able to detail the murder just fine. He explained that he shot John in the forehead while he slept. Then Shadow heard a noise from Nancy's side of the bed. He thought she was cocking a gun and instinctively pulled the trigger. When she started screaming, he panicked and shot three more times in her directions with his eyes closed. Most of the shots missed, but one of the bullets that did hit Nancy went into her back, hitting her ribs, lung, and shoulder blade, coming to a rest in her left shoulder. The second went into her jaw before ricocheting out of Nancy's eye, killing her. Nancy also had fresh bruises on her right calf and left thigh that were never explained. Police discovered Shadow's unhealthy obsession with Nancy and believed he performed sexual acts on her either before murdering her or possibly after. He never gave a reason for what he had done. In fact, he insisted he didn't know why he killed them. He claimed the dreams continued after the murder. Shadow wasn't sure if he had actually murdered the couple or if it was just a continuation of his dream. The final piece of evidence was John's missing gun. It was found in a trumpet case under Shadow's bed in his parents' home. To avoid the death penalty, Shadow pled guilty to two counts of deliberate murder and one count of aggravated burglary. He was sentenced to 220 years in jail, which was later reduced to 150 years in jail. He went to jail at age 19 and isn't eligible for parole until he turns 60 years old. He remains incarcerated in the Montana State Prison in Deer Lodge. The Clarks and the Boscos tried to guess over the motivation for killing. There was some tension between the two families, but nothing that would have led to murder. No motive was ever given by Shadow, which his attorneys believe led to him having a heavy sentence. 
Shadow repeatedly said he had no grudge against the couple, and he didn't know why he did it. He downplayed the seriousness of his charges, calling them a little thing, and a mistake he shouldn't be condemned for. Well, hold on now. He doesn't seem remorseful at all. Murdering two innocent people on a whim isn't a little thing, or just a mistake. He's clearly dangerous if he doesn't even grasp the seriousness of what he's done. Right. If I had a dream that I harmed someone and had no control, I'd be a wreck afterwards. He's way too cold. Uh, yeah. And that poor family doesn't even get answers as to why he took their loved one's lives. John's mother was so desperate for answers, she went to a psychic. How did she handle all of this? John's mother, Tony Bosco, was a columnist in the Catholic News Service and wrote an article on her struggle when Shadow was faced with a death penalty for what he had done to her family. She wrote, and I quote, Very early in life, I was chilled by the thought of legal execution. It was the day my uncle Tony's wife was physically restrained and taken to what they called an insane asylum in Poughkeepsie, New York. I asked my mother why Aunt Margie went crazy and she told me. Her brother and two friends had robbed a store and killed the owner. All three were put to death in the electric chair in 1928. My aunt never got over it. She ended up going insane. From that day on, the notion of the death penalty appalled me. When I got the news of the brutal murders, I wanted the killer dead. I wanted to kill him with my own hands, but that feeling also tormented me, for I had always been opposed to the death penalty. I felt now I was being tested on whether my values were permanent or primarily based on the human feelings and expediency. When it hits you personally, the anger and the pain of your loss makes you want to tear apart that person who stole your loved one and your happiness. But does this do any good in the long run? And should we be in the business of killing people? I saw so clearly that we are wrong to put the emphasis on penalty when it should be on unnatural death and all the horror this word conveys. Unnatural death at the hands of evil is horrendous, but it's even worse when it's sanitized by calling it lawful. It's hard to forgive. Not forgiving keeps us angry, and anger makes us feel more powerful. But if we don't forgive, we stay emotionally handcuffed to the person who hurt us. Now I am free enough to pray for Shadow Clark, hoping he will one day be able to respond to the touch of grace we are all given by God and find redemption. His act of killing reinforced my commitment to affirming life and forever my opposition to the death penalty. End quote. Wow. She's a better woman than I could be in that situation. To set aside the pain and anger she must have felt in order to analyze her own beliefs on how the killer should be punished is so wise and emotionally mature. Yeah, no, I'm not accepting anyone who murders my family's apology, and I don't believe forgiving someone makes you feel better applies to everyone. Some people can move forward knowing a murderer is suffering behind bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think many could do that in her shoes. She really put her own grief aside to see it from other perspectives. I wonder what made her even want to find compassion for the killer of her son and daughter-in-law. While she also became painfully aware that there were others besides her own family members whose lives were shattered by the murder, mainly Shadow Clark's parents. Seeing a photograph of his mother, Brenda, she realized that if anything could be worse than being the mother of the victim, it would be to be the mother of the one who became the killer. She knew that she never wanted to add to that mother's pain by having her son die as well. Tony Bosco died at the age of 91 on March 20th of 2020 at her home in Brookfield, Connecticut. She was one of the most prolific and influential Catholic writers of her generation. 
She wrote 17 books, thousands of editorials, news stories, interviews, columns, and book reviews. Towards the end of her career, Tony was a game changer in advocating against the death penalty, even when it touched her personally. Wow. I'm so impressed with this woman. She sounded like an amazing person. She sounds like she lived a full life and was quite the badass, I might add. She does sound like a badass. Hey, whatever happened to that psychic? Well, as for Daniel Brinkley, who accurately predicted how this case would end, he now does hospice work. He does his best to help those facing death to feel less afraid of what comes next. Were Shadow's dreams a premonition of what he would later do? Or were the dreams themselves driving him to commit the horrific acts of violence? The third option, of course, is that Shadow simply craved a twisted desire for murder and used the dreams as an excuse for his behavior. Shadow never did give a reason for why he chose the Boscos or even why he did what he did. No matter the reason, John and Nancy didn't deserve what had been done to them. The National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty's mission is to abolish the death penalty in the United States and support efforts to abolish the death penalty worldwide. Through strategic planning, campaign development, and training services, the NCADP enables every state to be effective, compelling advocates for change. They believe the continued existence and use of the death penalty divides us, distracts us, and derails us from building a kind of society that respects and values all. To add your voice to the growing course of people calling for an end to the death penalty, go to www.ncadp.org action. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week? Well, regardless of your stance on psychics, you likely possess your own intuitive psychic powers. Psychic powers can simply refer to your ability to see, hear, or feel things beyond the physical realm, which actually happens all the time to all of us, both knowingly and unknowingly. It could be a dream that comes true or a bad feeling that warns you away from a dangerous situation. To help with this, you can use any type of appetite crystal. Appetite offers an energetic focus on clearing and stimulating the third eye chakra. It also stimulates inner visions and enhances psychic abilities. I feel like this would be a great crystal to help you meditate. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.